Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, founder of Functional Health Info and the Functional Health Podcast. I'm trained in both biomedical science and nutrition, and I believe that a holistic and functional approach to health is fundamental to our well-being. I've set out to find some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, from practitioners to professors and everyone in between. With this podcast, I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives and providing you with simple tips and tricks to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Tom O'Brien. Dr. Tom is an internationally renowned speaker, workshop leader, and has authored several influential books, including The Autoimmune Fix and You Can Fix Your Brain. Specializing in the complications of gluten sensitivity and celiac disease, he is known by many as the Sherlock Holmes of chronic illness, finding the root cause of disease through a functional medicine model. Without any further ado, Dr. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so very much. I first came across your work actually when a dear friend of mine um, was diagnosed with non-celiac gluten sensitivity and she had hormone fluctuations, IBS problems, uh, severe low mood and she had complete remission of these things when she removed gluten and wheat products as well as dairy from her diet. So just to start things off, I was wondering why wheat containing grains, especially gluten and dairy, should be an integral part of a healthy lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. Uh, gluten is not bad for you. Bad gluten is bad for you. That's the difference. There is gluten in rice. There is gluten in corn. There is gluten in oats. But it's the toxic family of glutens in wheat, rye, and barley that are in the category of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Now, someone with non-celiac gluten sensitivity can also be sensitive to rice or to corn, to those gluten proteins in the other grains. But that is an additional complication, that when you're looking at the category of gluten sensitivity, with or without celiac disease, you're looking at wheat, rye, and barley. So for all of you who love Heineken, or, or uh, <laughs> uh, uh, what's the, uh, Guinness, 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 excuse me. Yes. <laughs> it's been so, so long since I've had a beer, it wasn't on the tip of my tongue. But for all of these that love Guinness, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. I'm terribly sorry because it's made with barley. You know, beers are made with barley. Now there are gluten-free beers that you can experiment with uh, that may work for you. Uh, that certainly is possible. And there's some really good ones now that are on tap in many locations. So even the guys who love their beer, may be able to continue to have their beer, just not the traditional beer that they grew up on. So good news and bad news. That's right. But, but we'll focus on the good news for now. Yes. <laughs> yes. Just elaborate on how wheat can cause autoimmune disease and why, even though it may have the same underlying cause, an autoimmune disease might um, be different from different people. Sure, of course. Mrs. Patient, if you pull at a chain, the chain always breaks at the weakest link. It can be at one end, the middle, the other end. It's your heart, your brain, your liver, your kidneys, wherever your weak link is. 
and the weak link is caused by your genetics, that's the deck of cards that you were dealt in life, and the antecedents, and that means the things that have happened to you so far. So if you're someone that loves tuna fish and knows that fish is healthy for you and you eat a lot of tuna fish, you probably have a fair amount of mercury in your body because all tuna now has mercury in it. And if the accumulation of mercury in different tissues of your body make those tissues more vulnerable to not working properly. So wherever the weak link is, wherever the toxic chemicals have accumulated, that's the antecedents, and then wherever your genetic weak link is, that's where the link's gonna break. So the first rule of thumb is stop pulling on the chain so mm -hmm. hard. Yes. Right? So what does that mean? Well, all degenerative diseases, as far as I know, practically every degenerative disease is a disease of inflammation. At the cellular level, the cell's on fire. And it doesn't matter if it's brain disease or cardiovascular disease or rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis or acne or depression. The cell is on fire. So the first rule of thumb is stop throwing gasoline on the fire. <laughs> That's why gluten is a problem for so many people is that it's the primary food that most Western civilization people eat multiple times a day every day. Yes. That's your toast or bagels for breakfast, the sandwich for lunch, the pasta for dinner, the croutons on the salad, the cookie, let alone the wheat flours that are added to so many different um, uh, uh, foods, such as sauces and soups. I mean, Japanese restaurants, you have to ask now. Please ask the chef if he puts any flour in the rice. Right. And the waiter or waitress will look at you like you're a nutcase. You say, oh, no, 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 it's right. I, I understand, but please ask the chef. And you have to look him in the eye directly with the request because they think that you're just fanatical. But three out of the last seven times I've done that, mm -hmm. the, the waiter came back and said, I'm so sorry. Chef puts a scoop of flour in the sushi rice. Wow. Because it makes it stickier. And so you think you're safe eating rice and you're actually not. So you have to ask the questions. Because uh, wheat is in so many ingredients. It's in the lipstick. It's in the shampoos. And you don't eat shampoo, but you breathe it. And yes. many people have heard of Baker's asthma. And it's what you inhale that can trigger the inflammation response in your body. Right. Okay. So it, it's hidden. We, we're exposed to wheat many times a day, every day. It's in your pharmaceuticals. You have to ask your pharmacist, please make sure that this medication is gluten-free. It's in the vitamins, uh, that sometimes the capsules of the vitamins. They yes. use wheat starch. And so you have to look for the vitamins where the label, they say gluten-free mm -hmm. because they're proud to do that because it's a little more expensive to make a vitamin or a pharmaceutical gluten-free. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if you have depression or recurrent miscarriages or arthritic pains or liver enzyme problems, or Hashimoto's thyroid disease. It doesn't matter. Wherever the weak link in the chain is, you have to stop throwing gasoline on the fire, or else you get the inflammation in those cells, and eventually, here come the symptoms. Why do you think in different governments across the world, globally, they tout whole grains to be healthy, 
especially wheat-containing grains. There's no question wheat has saved millions and millions of lives. You know, uh, when there's a famine in Africa, we ship a boatload of wheat over to Africa, you save thousands and thousands of lives. And that happens every year somewhere in the world. Um, so it's not that the food is just bad across the board. That wheat, there are proteins in wheat that our bodies can use. People can survive on wheat. Um, 70%, a little over 70% of the prebiotic, that not probiotics, but the prebiotic, that's the foods that feed the good bacteria in your gut. Yes. Over 70% of the prebiotics in the Western diet are wheat. So that's well, why when you take wheat out of the diet, you really have to know how to do it properly to replace the uh, prebiotics that you're no longer getting from wheat in your diet. That's why celiacs, for example, have a much higher risk. If you're an adult diagnosed with celiac, you have a much higher risk of dying within one year after diagnosis of cardiovascular disease. It's an 86% increased risk of dying wow. of cardiovascular disease in the first year after diagnosis compared to someone who does not get a diagnosis of celiac disease. And that's just mind baffling at first, like what? And this is in the largest study ever done on mortality in celiac. And you're saying, what, what's that? What did you say? Yes, 86% increased risk of mortality in the first year after diagnosis for adults diagnosed with celiac. That's because they've eliminated the prebiotic, 70% of the prebiotic in their diet and now they start eating wheat-free foods, gluten-free foods, which don't have any prebiotic to them. They're just garbage. Yes. Excuse me, but <laughs> they're, they're, they're just white paste. And there's no problem with having a gluten-free blueberry muffin once in a while. Mm -hmm. You know, or you want pasta, you want that full feeling, so you have gluten-free pasta. But there's no nutritive value to it. So having it once in a while as a treat to con congratulate yourself is fine, but you can't live on that. You have to replace the prebiotics that you've lost in your diet from eliminating wheat with other prebiotics. That's why we tell every patient, Mrs. Patient, when you go shopping in the vegetable section of the market, organic, of course, always organic, and there are many reasons why, yes. but buy every root vegetable that they have. Get parsnips and turnips and rutabaga and Jerusalem artichoke and sweet potatoes and carrots, every root vegetable they have, and make sure to have one root vegetable a day because root vegetables are loaded with prebiotics. Right. And you alter them, and the result is the altered um, uh, root vegetables you're eating have different fibers which feed different good bacteria in your gut. Then you go to Google and type in list of prebiotic foods and you'll be startled to see how many there are which includes onions and bananas and artichokes and avocado and the list goes on and on and on and you make sure to have two prebiotic foods every day and one root vegetable a day to replace the prebiotics that you've eliminated by eliminating wheat. Okay, and what's your take on um, antioxidant-rich foods, such as coffee, dark chocolate? I, I often get asked, what about red wine? Everyone, everyone should eat dark chocolate every day. 
And when I say that to an audience, the women always smile. They <laughs> always do. But this is the way to eat dark chocolate. You get the very best dark chocolate that you can find, the highest quality, the purest quality, and you break a square off and put it in your mouth. Don't let it touch your teeth. Yes. It never touches your teeth. That way, it dissolves in your mouth. It takes about two to three minutes for that one square to dissolve in your mouth. When it's dissolving, your taste buds are registering chocolates here. And the message goes from the tongue, the taste buds of the tongue, straight up to the thalamus in the brain. It's called the orothalamic tract. And you get the message, chocolate's here. Chocolate! <laughs> and you start stimulating endorphins and encephalons in the brain that are 200 times more powerful than morphine. Right. And so you get all of the health benefits of dark chocolate without gaining the weight and throwing your blood sugar out of balance by eating a whole bar. And if you want a little more after you've had that one square, because it takes two to three minutes, but your taste buds are saturated in two minutes. But if you want another, have another square. I've never had a patient have more than two squares. Wow. Because they're satisfied. They're saturated in the taste buds. They're producing the endorphins. They've got the feel-good feeling, and they're moving on to whatever's next in their life. They're not thinking about, oh, I really need some chocolate right now. They've satisfied that craving. Everyone should have dark chocolate every day. That's the title of this talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'd certainly probably get more hits with the title. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> In your book, you, you mentioned Dr. Alessio Fasano, who's a gastroenterologist in Harvard. Um, and I think he suggests that no one should eat wheat because it causes gut hyperpermeability in basically everyone. Yes. To a different extent in everyone. Yes. Um, but my, my question is, if it does cause gut hyperpermeability in everyone, why doesn't everyone get an autoimmune disease? Well, that's really a good question. And we cross a threshold. Uh, but... When you read the literature and in the book, The Autoimmune Fix, uh, all of the studies, not all, but there are many studies that reference this, um, cardiovascular disease, we believe, is the number one cause of death in the world. And when you read the science as to how does cardiovascular disease occur, how do your pipes plug up, called atherosclerosis, it's an autoimmune mechanism that triggers it. It's an autoimmune mechanism that causes and triggers the uh, hardening of your pipes, atherosclerosis. So when you look at the mechanisms behind cardiovascular disease, what becomes the number one mechanism to getting sick and dying in the world? It's your immune system trying to protect you from something, causing the inflammation that eventually plugs up your pipes. Yes. So it's the immune system. So when it's the immune, when you say, how come not everyone gets an autoimmune disease? Well, almost everyone does, but it doesn't manifest as rheumatoid arthritis or as psoriasis. It may manifest if the weak link in your chain is your, your vascular system, it manifests as your pipes plugging up and you don't feel your pipes plugging up until you get a heart attack or until you get a stroke. You don't feel it, but the mechanism is going on. So it just depends on where the weak link in your chain is as to where it's going to manifest. I know that Dr. David Perlmeyer and Dr. Dale Bredesen, um, they, they reference this in their books 
uh, suggesting that gluten um, can cause this uh, th- this effect on the brain. Correct. Reduce cognition, etc. Correct. So, what are the main signs for non-celiac gluten sensitivity? Ah. Because um, I know there's a breadth of them. One of the pioneers in the field of awareness on gluten sensitivity without celiac disease is Dr. Rodney Ford. Dr. Ford, back in the 90s, he's a a pediatric allergist and gastroenterologist, uh, board certified, double board certified. He's in New Zealand. And back in the early to mid 90s, he was saying, we've got a problem here. You know, he and I would cross paths at at seminars and we just high five each other because we were the ones out there <laughs> saying all of this when they, you know, so many people thought we were nutcases, but Rodney had the courage and he was ostracized by many of his peers because of his position. Right. And, you know, his position is if you have a problem with wheat, stop eating wheat. Yes. And, uh, but people thought, well, oh, that's crazy. Wheat's the staff of life and all that. Uh, but the quote that he gave as to who should be concerned about this? And he, he says this uh, many times, and he has such a wonderful way of saying this as well. Anyone who is sick. So if you are tired, you're sick. If you have headaches, you're sick. And if you've tried something and it's not working and you have symptoms, it may be gluten. It may be the gasoline that's pulling at the chain, manifesting with whatever symptoms you have. So Rodney said, it doesn't matter. There is no one symptom that you might get. You might get brain fog if that's the weak link in your chain. You might get um, severe menstrual cramps if that's the weak link in your chain. You might get joint pain if that's the weak link in your chain. That there is no common set of symptoms that are, well, I don't have that, so I guess I'm fine. You know, so I never say, this is what you look for. Rather, any time your health is not where you want it to be, and you've applied the principles that you've learned to be healthy, and they're working to some degree, but not working completely, it may be the gasoline on the fire that's creating the inflammation is wheat for you. Okay, because that could be the missing link in people. Some people say they eat clean all the time, they eat whole grain foods, they they never eat anything too processed. Let me give you an example. A fella comes in, 44-year-old fella, uh, that's perfect picture of health. His father died at 44 of a massive coronary. His two older brothers died in their 40s of massive coronaries. He was the last male in the family. He was 29 when his last brother died. So he went to a cardiologist who put him on a statin right away, protectively. Statins are drugs to lower cholesterol. And he didn't need it, but this was protection. So now here we are um, uh, 15 years later, and he comes in and says, I've heard about your tests. I want to do the tests. And these are tests looking for autoimmune diseases before you have severe symptoms. So he he does the blood test, and and he's a picture of health. His body fat is 18%, meaning that he exercises regularly. He only eats very good foods. Uh, uh, He's got a wonderful family, an excellent business. Looks like a very successful man. All of his doctors tell him he's perfectly healthy. He's the picture of health. So he runs these tests to see, does he have an autoimmune mechanism going on? It comes back that all three antibodies to his heart are sky high. Wow. His immune system is attacking his heart aggressively. He doesn't feel anything. He feels the picture of health. But his heart's greatly inflamed. 
because of the antibodies attacking his heart. And he looks and says, well, why, why is that? I don't know. Let's find out. Turns out that he um, had severe allergies to wheat and to dairy. Took wheat and dairy out of the diet, didn't do anything else because he was taking a lot of nutrients already, and his food selections were excellent. Six months later, rechecks, the antibodies to the heart are gone. Back to normal range. Incredible. He said, you saved my life. Well, the scientists that put this work together did. Yes. Yes. Great. And that's the power of this work. When you read the autoimmune fix and you understand that autoimmune diseases are the primary mechanism in getting sick and dying in the world, then you start asking the question, do I have an autoimmune mechanism going on? When you ask that question, you then, have, you then realize, do I have intestinal permeability? When you ask that question, you realize, well, wheat causes intestinal permeability. Who does it cause intestinal permeability in? Everyone. Holland, H-O-L-L-O-N, Holland and his team at Harvard, they looked at four different groups of people. They looked at those recently diagnosed with celiac disease. So their, their intestines were all chewed up right now. They had just been diagnosed. Those that had been celiacs on a wheat-free diet for over a year, so their intestines had healed. Those with non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and those with no recognizable problems with wheat. They looked at all four groups, and what did they find? Every person, when they're exposed to wheat, develops intestinal permeability immediately. Every person. It didn't matter. Every person. Let me say that differently. Every <laughs> person, right? <laughs> and so the, the, the point was, if you're human... So anyone that's listening to this, if you're human, every time you eat wheat, you get intestinal permeability. Now, Mrs. Patient, the fastest growing cells in the body are the inside lining of the intestines. Every three to five days, you have a whole new lining to your intestines, right? So you eat wheat for breakfast, you tear the lining of your intestines. That's intestinal permeability. You heal. You have a sandwich for lunch, you tear the lining of your intestines. You heal. You have pasta for dinner. You tear the lining of your intestines. You heal. Day after week after month after year after year after year until one day, this might be when you're two years old, 22 years old, 92 years old, one day you cross that line. It's called loss of oral tolerance. And you don't heal anymore. Then you get pathogenic intestinal permeability meaning that these large molecules get through the tears in the intestines before they've been broken down small enough to be absorbed naturally. You get these big molecules to get into the bloodstream. That is the gateway in the development of autoimmune diseases. So that's why Dr. Fasano, who you be, uh, began the question with um, at Harvard, has published so many studies on the danger and the association of wheat with the development of intestinal permeability. So I'm going to give you the Holland study for your listening audience so they can access it from you. I'll, I will put it in the show notes so they'll be able to download Great. it from there. And that's for every human. So once again, if you're human and listening to this, this relates to you. And you don't feel when you have intestinal permeability. That's just the gateway into the development of autoimmune diseases. And if the weak link in your chain is your joints... It may take seven years before you get rheumatoid arthritis, but this is the mechanism 
where it comes from. Or you get psoriasis, or you get migraines, or you get depression, or you get anxiety, or you get recurrent miscarriages, or you get menstrual cramps, or you get low testosterone levels, or you get inflammation in your joints, or you get acne, or you get hair loss. I mean, it doesn't matter what the symptoms are. This is the mechanism behind it. Thank you for explaining that. Thank you for sharing the story. I think it's so powerful because people can look completely healthy on the outside, fit, healthy, like you suggested, this this man with 18% body fat, but then be destroying themselves on the inside. Exactly right. No idea. Exactly right. One question that I get asked, um, well, just to, just to give you some background, a friend of mine had allergic rhinitis and many allergies actually to dust, pollen, etc. And she was um, given something called immunotherapy, which is exposure to a certain allergen or something that you're sensitive to in small quantities over a period of time. So you build up resilience to that thing. Quite commonly, this is done with people who have a severe peanut allergy, for example, given very tiny amounts, um, usually under the... Um, supervision of a healthcare professional over a period of time so their reaction is less to it. Why can't you do that with with gluten, with non-celiac gluten sensitivity? That's really a good question and the protein structures of um, these types of sensitivities to pollen uh, um, is different than the protein structures of dealing with wheat. I've never heard of desensitization working with wheat. Theoretically, it would seem possible um, that it, it will inhibit the uh, uh, inflammatory response. It seems possible, but I've never heard of it being successful. And I'm not an immunologist, so I can't explain to you why doesn't that work. Mm-hmm. Um, that I really don't know. But it's clear that it doesn't work. Oh, there's certainly no evidence I don't for know. It. Um, I've not done immunotherapy for wheat myself. Mm-hmm. There may be a few out there that have done this and find it's working. See, the problem is you can't base your protocols on symptoms. Symptoms are the last straw when your body can no longer compensate and adapt for the insult. Then you start getting symptoms that you really have to monitor the immune system to see, am I making antibodies to this substance? Because when you make antibodies to the gluten proteins or other proteins of wheat, poorly digested wheat, when you make antibodies, the danger is the impact those antibodies have on your own tissue. If the weak link in the chain is your brain, you may get brain deterioration and brain diseases. You don't feel when you've got elevated antibodies to the Purkinje cells in your brain. You don't feel that. You don't feel when you have elevated antibodies to myelin basic protein. Myelin basic protein is the um, plastic wrap around your nerves, if you will, the insulation of your nerves. And when you have elevated antibodies to wheat, if the weak link in your chain is myelin, you may produce elevated antibodies to myelin from eating wheat. And so when you have elevated antibodies to myelin from eating wheat, you damage the myelin. You don't feel when you're damaging myelin. There's no nerves to register. You got a problem here, you got a problem, so you don't feel it. But if you take the wire 
that goes from the battery of your car to the headlights. And if you remove some of the insulation off the middle of that wire somewhere, so now the wire's exposed in there, and you have the exposed wire touch the frame of the car, the headlights flicker on and off. And you say, what's wrong with the headlights? There's nothing wrong with the headlights. It's the wiring, yes. right? But that's MS. Mm -hmm. MS is the end stage of elevated antibodies destroying myelin for years. And then you eventually get MS. And you think, you just got MS. No, you got it years ago. When those antibodies got elevated, starting to kill off your myelin. Or the rheumatoid. You got it years ago. Or the psoriasis. Or the unexplained miscarriages. Or the um, loss of hair, alopecia. It doesn't matter what the symptoms are. The mechanism is going on for years before you ever get a symptom. And the trigger that sets off the elevated antibodies may be the body's inability to digest wheat. And if the weak link in your chain is myelin, your wheat sensitivity will create the antibodies to myelin. I mean, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. That's why... For the doctors and healthcare practitioners, you have to read the science. For the general public, read my book, The Autoimmune yes. Fix, because it's outliner. That, that's why it won the National Book Award. Mm -hmm. It's because it's a really good book. <laughs> and that's a shameless plug, I guess, for me. But I want the whole world to understand the mechanisms of why wheat is a problem for them and how it may contribute to the development of autoimmune diseases. So, so for people that want to avoid wheat on a day-to-day -day basis, I, I, I came across a paper actually recently, I believe it was in the Journal of Food Protection in 2014, and they found that products that were labeled as gluten-free, 20% of them, the ones that were tested, were above the recommended guidelines to be labeled as gluten-free. So they had more gluten than they were meant to, basically. Um, how, how do we say protected, even if the gluten-free products well, I've are not gluten-free? <laughs> yes, I've, I've, I've known that for years. And the FDA in the, in the U.S., the FDA, three scientists at the FDA did a study similar to the one you're referring to. They looked at 286 foods that are labeled gluten-free, and they looked at 180 foods that are naturally gluten-free, such as rice cakes. are made. You look at the ingredients, rice, salt, water. That's gluten-free, Right. So they looked at all these foods. They did two separate tests on every one of these foods, and they found that the uh, labeled gluten-free foods in the U.S., 97.9% uh, of them were gluten-free. So that was only 3% that were not. So that's pretty good for an industry. But yes. if you're one of the 3%, if you get that food, that's toast for you. I mean, you're, you're gone. You're, you're off to the races with the inflammation and wherever the weak link in the chain is, here comes the antibodies to myelin or to your joints. So it doesn't matter that most of the foods are gluten-free, the label gluten-free. If you get the ones that are not, that's the same problem for you, right? And those foods that were naturally gluten-free, 24.7% of them were not gluten-free. They were cross-contaminated. And you know the trucks that harvest the oats from the fields to bring it to the manufacturing facility, they hauled wheat last week. They don't clean the trucks. So the residue was there. Or the field of oats growing out there, that there's a field of wheat just a quarter of a mile down the road, and the wind blew some of the seeds over into the oat field, and the wheat grew up a little bit within, you know, there's a few stalks of wheat within the field of oats. 
and when you harvest all of that, you don't see the stalk of wheat in there. And the farmer's not going to stop his combine, get out, go pull up the wheat and bring it into the combine so it doesn't contaminate the oats. Mm-hmm. He's not going to do that. So there's contamination that occurs. So it's a very valid concern. And your question is, what do you do about that? Yes. You know, I've known about that problem for years. And all, all I could say for, for years was, be as careful as you can. But I met two scientists. Uh, one had spent six years studying this. Another one spent seven years studying this. And together, the three of us spent two years. And we developed digestive enzymes that digest 99% of all inadvertent exposures to wheat, 99% of it, within 60 minutes. And that's the critical component because there are digestive enzymes out there marketed to digest gluten, Mm -hmm. and they work. Most of them work, but they take three hours, four hours, six hours to work. And the immune system sentries standing guard to protect you are in the small intestine just past the stomach. So anything that comes out of the stomach that is a problem for you or a potential problem, the immune system gets activated right away. That's inflammation, right? I mean, where's celiac? It's in the first part of the small intestine. That's where it begins because that's where the sentries are standing guard. So anything that comes out of the stomach that hasn't been properly digested is going to trigger an immune response and trigger the inflammation that goes throughout your body. That's why these enzymes that take three to six hours to work, they're not going to help you. That you have to break this stuff down before it gets out of the stomach. Mm -hmm. Critically, critically important. That's why the digestive enzymes that we came out with in the U.S. is called E3 Advanced Plus. And we're trying to get them over here in Europe, and I think we will pretty soon. But you, you have to ask your... Uh, your doctor who's recommending enzymes to you or the health food store, if you're going there for these gluten enzymes, how long does it take? Show me the evidence. You know, please show me the evidence and the health food store owner won't know. The health food store owner won't have a clue, but they'll look, they'll ask the question and they'll eventually get the study that shows it takes about three and a half hours for these enzymes to break down the wheat. Well, that's going to help with the problems down in the large intestine. Yes. So that's going to help a great deal there, but it's not going to help in the small intestine. And so that's why you have to get this stuff digested and bro- the inadvertent exposure that we're, when we eat gluten-free foods that we're still sometimes getting exposure. Mm-hmm. The, now at least there's a path to protect you. And that is to take E3 Advanced Plus. And you, have, you take it before you start eating. Mrs. Patient, it's really a good idea to take digestive enzymes in general. Most of us need some help in digesting our foods because all the stress that we've lived in our whole lives, right? So having a little extra digestive enzyme is helpful. Take the digestive enzymes in the middle of a meal. Why? Because then it's sitting in your stomach inside the middle of that glob of food that's down there, and it digests from the middle going out towards the outsides of the food, and your system making digestive enzymes will digest from the outside going in. Yes. So you, you get the, the digestion going from both aspects, inside going out and outside coming in. But the E3 Advance Plus is different. You take it before you start eating. Why? So it's at the very bottom of this glob of food and nothing crosses into the small intestine that hasn't been fully digested. 
then you're safe. Now, that's the only way I know to protect yourself. And here's how important it is. When you eat quinoa, oh, quinoa, that's a very healthy grain. It's a high-protein grain. And it's a great grain for those that are gluten-sensitive because quinoa grows up in the high plateaus in Peru. No, it grows in the Midwest of the U.S. Oh, no, 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 no. It grows in the high plateaus in Peru. No, they crossbred the plant with grasses from the Midwest Plains, and now it grows in the Midwest of the U.S. Why? Because there's a market for it. So they looked at 15 cultivars of quinoa, different types of quinoa. They found four of them had toxic levels of gluten in the food, not contamination sitting within the food, but in the grain itself. Quinoa now may have toxic gluten because it's been crossbred with grasses that come from the U.S. So for, for people, for example, which um, have got tested and they know that they're NCGS, but their antibodies are non-existent, they haven't got any autoantibodies, would you say for them they wouldn't need to worry about the enzymes or do you think you should still definitely take them when you think there's a potential exposure? Once you've had increased antibodies to any of the components of wheat, once you've had um, uh, the immune system activated, you produce what are called memory B cells. Memory B cells never forget. So Mrs. Patient comes in, she's got a list of symptoms, we do the blood tests, we show the antibodies to wheat, she goes off of wheat, she's squeaky clean for six months, we do the blood test again, the antibodies have come down to normal. Well, can I eat wheat now? No, because you have memory B cells that never forget. For the rest of your life, if you're ever exposed to wheat again, then um, you start producing the antibodies right away, yes. right away. And if the weak link in your chain is myelin, you start producing the myelin antibodies again, or the rheumatoid antibodies, or the psoriasis antibodies. That's why you can't have the antibodies elevated. So um, once you've crossed the line, because everyone is sensitive to wheat, everyone, no human can digest this stuff. And when your immune system says enough is enough, it can be a two years old, 22 years old, 92 years old. When your immune system says enough is enough, you never will be able to have wheat again without your immune system getting activated. Now, granted, the question you asked about desensitization is a valid question, and there may be some work being done on that. I'm not aware, but the, the premise is a valid premise. But aside from that, you never are able to have wheat again without your immune system being reactivated to try to protect you. Great, thank you for clearing that up. In your book, The Autoimmune Fix, you explain complex biological mechanisms underpinning non-celiac gluten sensitivity and celiac disease and how it pertains to autoimmune diseases. But are there any other foods which can be common allergens or people can have common sensitivities to which may also contribute to autoimmune diseases? Oh, you bet, you bet, there are many. 50% of celiacs also have a dairy sensitivity. And if they continue eating dairy, they give up wheat, but they continue di eating dairy, there's a mechanism called uh, cross-reactivity. And your sensitivity to dairy may have your body thinking you're still eating wheat, and the wheat antibodies continue to be elevated. And then the myelin antibodies, if that's the weak link in your chain, or your joint antibodies. So uh, dairy is a very common one, 50%. Corn 
is a very common one, 50%, above 50%, just under. I think some of the papers are at 46%. There may be one at 52 54% of uh, celiacs also have sensitivity to corn. That's why many doctors say go grain-free, go completely grain-free. And for some people, that makes a huge difference. Right away, they feel so much better. Now, I don't think everyone in the world needs to go grain-free. I think rice is a good food for some people, and we need some carbohydrates. Uh, uh, and if you're transitioning to a low-carbohydrate way of living, meaning grain-free, unless you have a health condition, I recommend that you, you transition over to a new way of eating. For those that want to be vegetarians, great idea for those that want to do it, but you've been eating meat your whole life. All of a sudden, tomorrow, that's it, I'm done with meat. And you do this complete shock to your system. Your digestive enzymes, your, your, your uh, mobile, your, your utilization of nutrients is, has been based on including meat in your diet for a lifetime. Now, all of a sudden, in one day, I'm done with meat. You know, the result is you stress your body. Mrs. Patient, it's so much better if you choose to go vegetarian. Transition. Transition over a couple of months. So if you've been eating meat three, four times a week every week, have it once or twice a week for yes. a few weeks. And then once a week. And then once every two weeks. So you don't develop anemias. You don't get sick. I mean, the sickest patients I've seen are vegetarians. Right. That don't know how to do vegetarianism the proper way. You have to learn about biological value of proteins. Your body has been addicted in some ways to the easy access proteins of meat. Now, you just stop in one day, all of a sudden you develop protein deficiencies. Well, I'm eating grains. But your body isn't accomplished at getting the proteins out of the grains, and you don't know how to mix the grains together in such a way so that you get complete proteins. Why in every culture that um, um, has low meat intake... Why do they include beans and what? Beans it's and rice. rice. It's always beans and rice because the amino acids that are high in beans are the ones that are low in rice. And so when you mix the two foods together, you get a more complete protein. You increase the biological value. So you just don't want to just change in a day. The only exception to that is when you're sick and you've been diagnosed with a gluten sensitivity or a corn sensitivity or a dairy sensitivity, if you're sick, if you've got autoimmune mechanisms going on, you stop today. Yes. And then you work with a nutritionist to guide you on how to transition into a healthy way of eating. You know, you don't just start eating the gluten-free foods that are nothing but junk. They're white paste. And uh, excuse me, gluten-free food industry, but it's junk. There's no prebiotics in it. There's no vitamins added to it to enrich it. When we eat wheat, wheat was enriched with vitamins, minimal amounts, but some. And for some people, that's all the vitamins they got. Now you take wheat out of their diet and they lose those, those B vitamins. Now they develop B vitamin deficiencies because, and they're eating the gluten-free pastas and the gluten-free breads that have no B vitamins and have no prebiotics in them. So they get sick as we talked about earlier here. So you don't want to transition from going gluten-free into eating gluten-free pastries and pastas and breads. 
You want to go gluten-free by transitioning into eating rice, uh, not rice, excuse me, root vegetables and more prebiotic foods, two prebiotic foods and one root vegetable every single day. Yes. And occasionally have a little gluten-free pasta if you want to. I suppose one of the main benefits as well is that they're much more nutrient-dense, these tubers, than grains anyway. And exactly much more right. The nutrients are much more in, in a much more absorbable form. Exactly right. So in terms of like other resources, I know you developed the Gluten Summit. I, I believe you um, interviewed 29 health professionals around the around the area of gluten and autoimmunity. Yes. Um, can you not summarize, but pick out things that you did not know before that you learned interviewing these experts? Oh, uh, Professor Lauren Cordain, Colorado State University, the godfather of the entire paleo movement. This uh, doctor is just the geek scientist who just dials down in the literature. And when he talked about the inflammatory mechanisms of lectins that are in wheat, they're called wheat germ agglutinins. And he talked about how they form clots. That may be a stroke. That may be thrombophlebitis. Uh, that could be a miscarriage coming from the lectins in wheat. And the, uh, he tied together for us the whole lectin sensitivity world. So when you have a wheat sensitivity, if it's the lectins you're sensitive to, you have to then consider all the lectins. He helped put that together. Professor Marios Hajivasalu from Sheffield uh, here in England, uh, when he talked about wheat sensitivity contributing to antibodies to the cerebellum, that's the area of the brain that controls muscle movement throughout your body. Why is it that elders can't dance up and down the stairs? They have to hold the railing and, and be careful going up or down stairs. But a 30-year-old doesn't in general. And why is it? It's because their cerebellum's been being killed off for 40 years. And now they're in their 60s and 70s and their cerebellum has shrunk. So the messaging down to the muscles from the brain it has been compromised. 26% uh, of all people that have elevated antibodies to wheat, 26% of them have elevated antibodies to their cerebellum. Wow. That's one out of four. Your, your immune system is killing off your cerebellum. Would this suggest that it's not because um, elderly people are, are frail and that's why they fall? It's suggesting that there is the, the, the killing off of the cerebellum. That's well, why they fall. Well, the imbalance. Yeah, in the they're, body. they're they're frail in their in their confidence of walking on the planet, walking on Earth, and that's because of their cerebellum. They also have osteopenia, osteoporosis, which may be the weak link in your chain when you have a wheat sensitivity. Um, in the archives of internal medicine in 2006, they published the paper that said every osteoporotic patient needs to be checked for celiac disease because celiac disease could be the cause of their osteoporosis if that's the weak link in your chain, but every one of them. So what happens is 30, 40 years of slowly, of elevated antibodies slowly killing off your cerebellum, slowly killing off your brain, slowly killing off the myelin around your nerves, just depends on where the weak link is. That's why as we age, we become more fragile, we become more unstable 
walking on the earth. So we've talked about how uh, the gut can be hyperpermeable and that can lead to numerous autoimmune diseases. What about the blood-brain barrier? Because people can have um, what's known, I suppose, in layman's terms as a leaky brain. Yes. Um, how would you repair the blood-brain barrier to stop uh, Good, potentially yes. harmful particles entering the brain? My new book will be coming out shortly and it's called You Can Fix Your Brain. One hour a week to the best memory, vitality and sleep you've ever had and the goal here is that everyone embrace the concept of base hits win the ball game now that's an american term for baseball that when you go for home runs keep trying to hit a home run you're going to lose the game right if you keep going for base hits, just get on base. Next person gets a base hit, moves you around the bases. Next person gets a base hit, moves you around the bases, and you score. Eventually, base hits win the ball game. When you do all these little things uh, to help your health uh, improve, you win the ball game. You're much stronger overall. So the question about the blood-brain barrier, we're going to talk in great detail in the book about it. Your blood-brain barrier is the protection around the brain that only allows certain size molecules in the bloodstream to get into the brain. You know, we have four different immune systems in the body. There's one in your liver, there's one in your gut, there's one in your blood vessels, and there's one in your brain. And the one in the brain is the most potent of all. These guys don't have just pistols to destroy anything that gets in there. They don't have high-powered rifles such as the antibodies in the bloodstream. They've got bazookas. They're called the glial cells. Anything that gets through the blood-brain barrier, the glial cells are activated right away and fire these bazookas to destroy whatever got in there, right? Your blood-brain barrier is like the cheesecloth around the brain. Only really small molecules can get in. But when you get a breach of the blood-brain barrier, that's like a tearing of the cheesecloth. You get a breach of the blood-brain barrier. And the result is these larger molecules get into the brain. They're called macromolecules. And the result is that the glial cells get activated. They fire their bazookas. They destroy whatever that thing was. But then, and, and there's no problem, but you had toast for breakfast that created the breach of the blood-brain barrier. You get sandwiches for lunch, you create more breach of the blood-brain barrier. Pasta for dinner, day after day after day after day, so there's more of these macromolecules that get through into the brain, activating the glial cells, more inflammation in the brain, more inflammation in the brain, collateral damage, now you make antibodies to get rid of the damaged brain tissue, now you're off to the races with brain autoimmune diseases. Mm -hmm. And it may manifest as depression, just go to Google and type in depression and inflammation. And here come the studies of, that show the inflammation in the brain and all of the inflammatory markers that are associated with depression. And when you reduce the inflammatory markers by stop throwing gasoline on the fire, the depression goes down and you don't need your medications anymore. Many people are able to trans, uh, transition transition off of their medications with the help of their doctor that prescribed them. You just go and say, Doc, I've changed my diet. I'm feeling better. Can you monitor me? And can we transition off of some of the dosing here and see if I can get off this stuff? Every doctor is willing to do that if you're rational. If they're not, find a new doctor, right? Find a new doctor. But 
you can you can transition gently over time off of most of the medications. It doesn't matter if it's schizophrenia. Just go to Google and type in schizophrenia and gluten, and you see all of the studies that come up on people who have, with the help of their doctor, they've even been checked out of the schizophrenia sanitariums that they were in, and they say, the, the, the researchers say, one year later on follow-up, they're still free of any symptoms of schizophrenia. So it doesn't matter what it is uh, in terms of the brain manifestation, the symptoms. Dr. Dale Bredesen, of course, he's reversing Alzheimer's. Yes. He's got over 100 patients. Read the book, The End of Alzheimer's. And one of the top things on the list, get wheat out of there. There's 37 things on the checklist that you have to do to reverse Alzheimer's. And it can take five years, but you can do it. But it's the inflammatory markers that we put into our body that cause the breach of the blood-brain barrier that lets the macromolecules get through into the, into the brain that activates the glial cells protecting you, destroying that stuff, that causes the collateral damage, damaging your tissue, that then creates the antibodies to get rid of the damaged tissue that creates the autoimmune cascade in your brain. So it seems clear that we have to heal the gut in order to heal the brain. That, that is, is the only way. Years ago, you used to work in an organic bakery and bake bread <laughs> in your early years. Um, I was... <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> yes. I was wondering, um, from then, I know you got tested and you had autoantibodies to your brain. Yes. What do you think would have happened if you didn't realize this was the case and you started living how you were living back then? Oh, oh. Well, I was a banker when I was in my early, or not a banker, I was a baker when I was in my early 20s and, uh, you know, hair down to my waist and lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It was, <laughs> it was a different era. <laughs> and uh, uh, we used to make this bread by hand. I'd roll 48 loaves a day of this stone ground whole wheat bread uh, that uh, no yeast and it would rise naturally. It would take 24 hours, but it would rise. And it was just incredibly good bread. People came from miles and miles around to buy the bread. It was, we were very proud of this. And uh, I used to cut a slice of that bread uh, when it comes out of the oven hot, uh, pour honey on it, slice bananas and peanut butter. And I thought it was the healthiest thing I could do. I was eating a blood sugar time bomb, right? <laughs> Had much more sugar than a Snickers bar. But, but it's but, natural, right? Yeah, it was natural. Right, it was natural. It was natural. And, but if I had continued eating that way, what would have happened to me? Um, I'd be dead today. I'd be dead. Uh, my dad died at 64 of a massive coronary. And when he died, uh, startling us all, you know, we, were, we didn't expect it. The pathologist, chief pathologist, city of Detroit, who uh, did the autopsy, called me and said, Dr. Bryan, we don't know why your dad died. I said, what do you mean? Well, he had a heart attack, but there was no evidence of a clot. And he only had 30% blockage in his left descending coronary. That's the widow maker. But 30% blockage is not enough. He said, we suspected foul play. I'm sorry, that's the law. So I did toxicology screens. There was nothing. We looked for needle marks. There was nothing. We did lung biopsy to see if he breathed something. There was nothing. I don't know why your father died. This is the second time in my career. I'm really sorry. That sent me on a hunt. This was 1990. And it led me to Dr. Kilmer McCulley, 
Dr. McCulley, who was at Harvard in the late 60s and early 70s, writing research papers saying, we have to put folic acid and B vitamins in the cereal because thousands are dying unnecessarily. They thought he was a nutcase. No one was writing about this back then. No one. And there was a lobbying effort to have Kilmer McCulley fired from Harvard. Why? Well, it would have cost the cereal industry millions of dollars to do this. Kilmer McCulley was fired from Harvard. The only place he could get a job was a basement laboratory in a VA hospital in Maryland. So he went from the pillars of success at Harvard to a basement lab in a VA hospital. But he kept doing his first-tier research, publishing his articles in the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and Lancet in the British Medical Journal. Kept publishing his articles about homocysteine and, it's, and how it can, it's called the silent killer. So I called Dr. McCulley. I said, Dr. McCulley, it's Tom O'Brien. He said, well, hello, Tom. We had met. And I told him what happened. He said, I'm very sorry. And I said, Dr. McCulley, I know that elevated homocysteine levels can cause vasospasm. That means your blood vessel spasms up. He said, yes. Can an elevated homocysteine cause vasospasm at the site of a 30% blockage, the widowmaker, effectively making it 100% blockage. And he said, yes, we've reproduced that in our laboratory. That's how my father died. He must have had elevated homocysteine levels that caused the left ascending coronary artery to spasm, completely blocking the blood flow to the heart, caused a massive coronary. He fell down dead. Then the blood vessel relaxed. So the, on autopsy, there is no evidence of how he died. So I checked myself. I have elevated homocysteine levels. My sister does. My brother does. 19 of my 21 first cousins did. I made them all do the test. I'm the oldest in the family. So I said, do this test. And they all, 19 of 21 have it. It's the silent killer. Why do I tell you this? Where are B vitamins absorbed in the body? In the proximal part of the small intestine. Where is the inflammation that occurs if the food comes out of the stomach? the proximal part of the small intestine. When you have inflammation in the proximal part of the small intestine, you don't absorb your B vitamins. If you don't absorb your B vitamins, you can get elevated homocysteine levels. If you get elevated homocysteine levels, you can die. So this is why I'm so intense about this. This will kill you. It may manifest as a stroke. It may manifest as heart disease. It may manifest as cancer. It may manifest as advanced autoimmune diseases. This will kill you. So you just do the right blood test. Find out, is my immune system, which is there to protect you, it's the Army, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard in your body trying to protect you, your immune system. Is my immune system saying, you got a problem with wheat? If you do, I don't care how you feel. I don't care what you think. Read the science, read my book, and then get off of wheat. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. I think that story will resonate a lot with our listeners. Can you just confirm what test you were talking about for this? Um... Yes, yes. Every laboratory in the world, when they check you for a wheat sensitivity, they're checking, or they'll call it gluten. What they're checking you for is one of the amino acid complexes called alpha-glidin. Mrs. Patient, 
proteins are like a pearl necklace. Hydrochloric acid undoes the clasp of the pearl necklace. Now you have a string of pearls in your hand. Your digestive enzymes are like scissors, snipping away at that pearl necklace, break, breaking it into smaller clumps of the, small, of the pearl necklace. Smaller clumps, smaller clumps, smaller clumps, until you snip it down into each pearl of the pearl necklace. That's called an amino acid. The amino acids can go right through the cheesecloth of your intestines and get into the bloodstream. That's the purpose of cheesecloth, to only let the small amino acids get through. None of the clumps are supposed to get through. The problem with wheat is that we don't have the scissors to break it down into each pearl of the pearl necklace. No one does. If you're human, you don't have the scissors. The best you can do is break it into clumps of the pearl necklace. Those clumps of the pearl necklace are gasoline on the fire, causing inflammation in your intestines that tears the cheesecloth. When you tear the cheesecloth, these clumps of the pearl necklace, called peptides, get through into the bloodstream. Now your immune system has to protect you to make the antibodies. So there are over 62 clumps of the pearl necklace that have been identified that stimulate an immune response from wheat. 62. But every laboratory in the world checks one. It's called alpha-glidin. It's 33 pearls long. That's all they check. And if it comes back positive, you got a problem. But if it comes back negative, the doctors say you don't have a problem. That's not true. The only thing that test can tell you is uh, accurately you can say, well, you don't have a problem with the 33 pearl clump of the pearl necklace. Well, what about the other clumps, doctor? Well, I didn't check that. Well, why not? Well, the laboratory doesn't offer that service. And I don't even know what you're talking about. Because doctors haven't written, they haven't read the studies about the different clumps of the pearl necklace. They think the blood test they're doing, checking the 133 pearl, is all that you have to check. No, it's primary. It's a very important one, but it's not the only one. So lab tests were developed back in 2010. And we brought them here to England in 2013. And the laboratory here is called Regenerous Labs, regenerous.com, or regenerouslabs.com. And the blood test is called Cyrex Array Number 3. It looks at 10, the top 10 peptides of poorly digested wheat. And if you tell your doctor you want this test or you go to Regenerous Labs and you get this test done, Use the code Dr. Tom, and they will give you a complimentary urine test looking for the 33 pearl clump. So when you get the blood test done, that's the most accurate, that's what you have to do, but then they'll give you the $100 test for free for the urine test. Why? Why do you do the urine test? Because once you go gluten-free, and you're completely gluten-free, you're working hard at it, sometimes people get the blood retested three months, six months later, they still have a problem. They said, but I've been gluten-free. Well, let's see if you've been gluten-free. That's when you do the urine test because if the 33 pearl clump is in the urine, you got wheat somewhere. Yes. And then you have to look at your lipstick. You have to look at your makeup. You have to look at your quinoa. You have to look at your rice. You have to look at your vitamins, your pharmaceuticals because you're getting gluten somewhere. That's the value of the urine test. So um, you don't use the urine test to tell if you have a problem or not. It's not going to tell you that. It's just going to tell you, yeah, there's wheat in your urine. So, But that's really good once you've gone gluten-free 
and all of a sudden, but you still have the antibodies, then you do the urine test to see, am I being exposed? And if not, okay, this must be a cross-reactivity with another food, a bacteria, or a virus. Then you have to dial down that road to figure out what the heck is it. But the test is called Cyrex Array Number 3. It's at regenerouslabs.com and use the code Dr. Tom. Excellent. Thank you for enlightening us. Yes. I know that we're coming up on time, but there's a couple of questions I just want to cover with you. How do you see medicine evolving as new research in this area emerges? It's really wonderful to see that the younger docs coming out in the field are much more open because they have been exposed to these concepts of functional medicine and integrative medicine and complementary medicine for years before they came out in practice. The docs who have been out for a while, um, only the ones who have done extra study really understand these concepts. There are still doctors out there that say, if you don't have celiac disease, you don't have a problem with wheat. There are thousands of studies now on non-celiac gluten sensitivity, the amylase trypsin inhibitors, the wheat germaglutinins, the uh, wheat gluteomorphins, there are the FODMAPs. There are so many different components of wheat that are a problem that do not manifest as celiac disease. I think it's positive, though, to look at the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine or indeed the lifestyle medicine movement in general, as well as Rangan Chatterjee's prescribing lifestyle medicine course. Um, it seems to be educating doctors, younger doctors, as you said, are getting more involved in this movement, which is only a positive. That's exactly right. You know, it's wonderful to see what Dr. Rangan is doing. I mean, he's just, he's taking it to the masses and showing people, this is boots on the ground. You got diabetes, all right, I'm gonna come into your house. We're cleaning out your pantry. <laughs> you're, you're, you're gonna eat right and just watch what happens. And they reverse diabetes in a month to two months. They're off their medications in a couple of months. Unbelievable. Doctors say that's impossible. No, it happens again and again and again. So yeah. kudos to Dr. Rangan for what he's doing. It's really a great way to carry the message out to the world. Yes, exactly. He's doing things where, as you said, were thought to be impossible yes. and showing that they are indeed possible. Yeah, you know, just it, through lifestyle it's not, change. It's not rocket science. It's common sense. Unfortunately, we were raised in a society that doesn't believe in common sense. We believe in comfort foods. We believe in eating what we want because it tastes good. Well, we'll put that on your tombstone. One last question. There's two, actually. How important do you think the collaboration of healthcare professionals is when tackling chronic disease, including complementary and alternative medical practitioners? You know, it's really critical. It's critical. And I shouldn't be so aggressive about this, but it's a little bit for entertainment for people. But I just want people to really hear this. And that is our doctors have our own areas of expertise. We've spent years and years studying, really trying to help people. Every doctor comes into their profession with the greatest of intent to be of service. They're trained in a system, unfortunately, that's very limited. You know, when our, when our deans of medicine come as guests to the Institute of Functional Medicine and they hear this whole concept of what functional medicine is, consistently they say the same thing. This really is the medicine that needs to be practiced all over the world but it'll take us 10 years to change what's happening at Harvard or Stanford or Northwestern medical schools. It'll take us 10 years. And at first we would cock our heads and say, what? But then it was obvious because 
They've got a, the dean of medicine has to go back and talk to the dean of gastroenterology, who has his own fiefdom and believes what he believes and has been very successful. That's why he's the dean of gastroenterology at Harvard, is because he's really good at what he does. He's written a lot of research papers, considered the world authority on his area of interest. And here we are coming in and saying, hey, this is a whole new way of looking at health. And unfortunately, doctors get kind of locked into their routine. So kudos to the doctors that dip their toe in the water and read a study here or there and their jaw drops. Say, well, that's kind of interesting, but I don't believe it. I'm not going to change my operating system, but I'll read a little bit more. So I think for our traditional doctors, it's very healthy to be a skeptic. A skeptic is one that says, I don't believe you. I need to research this for myself. But when you research it, it's, it's unmistakable that this is what healthcare should be. I mean, it's just common sense. You reverse diabetes, you reverse Alzheimer's, you reverse rheumatoid again and again and again. People should watch Betrayal, the autoimmune disease secret they're not telling you. There'll be a link. I thank you for telling me that before the show. There'll be a link on your site for Betrayal. Because we interviewed research scientists all over the world. And I, because I'd read their research papers and I knew what questions to ask them. And then we interviewed the doctors who were applying the principles of those research scientists. And then we interviewed the patients of the doctors who were complying with the doctor's recommendations and they reversed their MS and they reversed their psoriasis and they reversed their rheumatoid. And here's the 44 year old woman here in London who's interviewed and she says, You know, I took the tube to come here. It's not a big deal. But then she got teary-eyed and said, but it is. Because two years ago, she was in a wheelchair with MS and she couldn't walk. And she had eight lesions on her brain. Now she only has two lesions left on her brain and she has no symptoms whatsoever. She could walk the seven blocks to come for the interview. So it's healthy to be a skeptic and not believe things that you hear. But then do the footwork to research and say, oh my gosh, I guess there is something to this. The problem is so many of our doctors are cynics. They're not skeptics, they're cynics. Skeptics are, I don't believe you, I'm gonna research this for myself. Cynics are, I don't believe you. Yes, I, I completely agree with you. I think the idea is that you should be skeptical of these things, but be open-minded and do your own research around them before making your own opinion. Right. And as Groucho Marx said, be open-minded, but not so much that your brains fall out. Right? <laughs> so be open-minded and then do your research. Read my book, The Autoimmune Fix. That'll get you off in the direction with so much of the science so that you can say, oh, there, this makes sense to me. I want to pursue this further. For people which are just dipping their toes and maybe haven't heard of or not familiar with non-celiac gluten sensitivity or functional medicine, can you give them three resources or three tips to help improve the health? Of course. Of course. The Autoimmune Fix. It's on Amazon. <laughs> the Gluten Summit, because you listen to the world leaders in vascular... Dr. Mark Houston at Vanderbilt, the go-to guy in the world in vascular biology and how to reverse high blood pressure and how to reverse coronary artery disease. The go-to guy in the world, Mario's Hajivasalu that we referenced, Michael Marsh at Oxford, the godfather of all celiac diagnosis. They're all in the Gluten Summit. So you listen to the world experts in the Gluten Summit. So the autoimmune fix, the Gluten Summit, and then betrayal, the autoimmune disease solution they're not telling you. 
Go through those three. It'll take you a few months. Go through those three and you, you've changed your life. For the rest of your life, no one will ever be able to challenge you because you'll know in your heart that there really is something to this. You will have listened to the world experts. Dr. Tom, I just want to say thank you very much for your wisdom and insight in this area. And thank you for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Tom O'Brien. Since this recording, Tom has released his new book, You Can Fix Your Brain, to help better memory, productivity, and sleep. You can find links to Dr. Tom's books, website, and summits in the show notes, as well as everything else that we discussed today. If you want to support the podcast, please subscribe and don't forget to check out the other episodes available in the series. I would love it if you got in touch on social media through Instagram and Twitter and let me know what you think. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support. 